Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, and welcome back to another journal review in thoracic surgery with your Swedish Medical Center thoracic surgery team. I'm Kelly Dawes, a third-year surgical resident here at Swedish, and today I'm joined by the fabulous Drs. Brian Louie and Peter White. We are really excited to share with you guys this journal club today comparing two landmark trials investigating lobar versus sublobar resection for peripheral stage 1A non-small cell lung cancer. The Japanese JCOG trial was published in Lancet in April of 2022, and the U.S., Canadian, and Australian CalGB trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2023. And they also have a brand new subset analysis comparing wedge to segmentectomy, um, which was published this summer. We've got a lot to get through in this episode, and joining us to help ensure we do justice to such a groundbreaking journal club is Dr. Eric Vallier, our chair of thoracic surgery here at Swedish Medical Center. Dr. Vallier, we're honored to have you here with us today. All right. Well, before we dive into the discussion, these two groundbreaking trials, it's really important to understand the historical context and provide some background as to why these trials were even developed. And so... In order to understand their impact on how we manage patients with early stage lung cancer, uh, Brian, why don't you kind of review some of that literature for us? Thanks, Peter. You know, we need to go back almost 30 years ago to 1995, and everybody's heard about the Ginsburg trial as part of the lung cancer study group that was, that published their randomized trial comparing lobectomy to segmentectomy or a wedge resection in 247 patients with T1N0 non-spal cell lung cancer, and that set the standard of surgery for many, many years. One of the most important things to keep in mind regarding this trial is the day and age in which it took place. These patients were diagnosed with chest x-rays, AP and laterals. Preoperative CTs were not required, and there wasn't anything like a PET scan. While they required interoperative confirmation of N0 status, this was based on sampling of one node from segmental, lobar, hyalur, or mediastinal lymph nodes, and all sublobar resections required, were required to have at least two centimeters in March. As we review these studies today, we'll definitely see some differences about how these study, studies were designed compared to the 1995 Ginsburg trial. However, there's also some similarities as well, especially in how some of the lymph node staging was done intraoperatively for the KELGB trial. Well, the bottom line is that Ginsberg and Rubenstein concluded that there was a three times higher local recurrence rate for sublobar resection, as well as a 50% higher lung cancer mortality rate. And because of that, this pretty much cemented lobectomy as a standard of care at that time for pretty much all patients with peripheral early-stage non-small lung cancer. That's some pretty convincing data. So I'm curious as we head into discussing the CalGB and JCOG trials, how difficult was it for these investigators to try to challenge this dogma which had been around for so long with seemingly such strong evidence that lobectomy was superior? A couple of many things. Number one is if you go back to the Ginsburg trial, a lot of these lesions were bigger than two centimeters. Remember, this was T1N0, less than three centimeters in size. Number two is we now, with CT scanning that's being done either in the screening context or 
Anytime you walk in the emergency room, you have chest pain, you get a CT chest. We were seeing more and more of these little things, little lesions, less than two centimeters. And there was a strong message from retrospective data, a lot of that coming out of Japan, that we probably did not need to do a lobectomy for these little peripheral lesions that were less than two centimeters in size. There was no randomized data to date, but there was some hints. And biologically, honestly, the cancers that we are seeing today are very different than the ones that the lung cancer study group were studying in the 80s. They're just not the same animal. So I think all these things led to the need for the trial and the comfort in investigators in getting these trials done. Yeah. And you also have to remember that it takes years and years to both enroll as well as report on survival data. I mean, the JCOG and the CalBG trials, they started enrolling in 2009 and 2007, respectively. Yeah, you all are always emphasizing to us residents how important the surgical history is as you're looking at new data. And so I'm glad we started off with that important point. And now that we've set the stage for discussing this new body of evidence for stage 1A non-small cell lung cancer, let's move forward and let's compare and contrast the results of these two trials. So we're going to start with discussing each trial's methods. Um, we'll move forward into analyzing the results, and then we'll discuss the conclusions that we can draw from each trial and how it's impacting clinical practice today. All right. So just starting with the basics. So with each of these trials, Kelly, how many patients were there and where did they end up taking place? Okay. So the CalGB trial was a multi-center international trial. It was across 83 institutions in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. They registered 1,080 patients from 2007 to 2017, and about 697 ultimately met criteria for randomization. Now, the JCOG trial, um, it was also a multi-center trial across 70 institutions solely in Japan. They registered 1,319 patients from 2009 to 2014, and around 1,100 ultimately met criteria for randomization. And I think we have to acknowledge here how phenomenal it was for the Japanese intergroup trial to, to accrue a thousand patients in, in a five-year period. And that's fantastic. Obviously, their cancer care distribution in Japan is different than it is in North America. But, you know, there's no way we can do that in the U.S. and in Canada. Yeah, Eric, truly, it's a, a remarkable feat, and I wish we certainly could do that in the U.S. Now, since the beginning of this episode, we've been throwing around the phase the phrase stage one non-small cell lung cancer to reference the patients that this data impacts. But we need to be a lot more specific than that. So starting with the CLGB trial, what patients specifically were studied? It's great point. So specifically, the CalGB trial looked at patients with less than two centimeter peripheral T1A N0 non-small cell lung cancer. And more specifically, peripheral is referring to the outer third of the lung. Right. And the JCOG trial looked at pretty much the same subset of patients with preoperative characteristics, but there's one really important exception that we'll talk about a fair amount. So the JCOG trial included a maximum tumor size of two centimeters, similar to what's described in the CalGB trial. However, that also included the GGO component. So they had something called a consolidation to tumor ratio requirement. And initially that requirement was just greater than 0.25, meaning that 0.25% of the tumor was solid compared to the rest, which could be a GGO. Well, about four years after enrollment had started, they published data showing that 
a consolidation to tumor ratio that was less than 0.5 had equivalent outcomes for sublobar resection. So rather than duplicating some of those patients, they actually increased the minimum to 0.5 after that time. Uh, so ultimately, this resulted in about 12% of the JCOG patient population having a consolidation to tumor ratio that was less than 0.5 and greater than 0.25. And that is a very important distinction because in the CLGB trial, there had to be a two centimeter solid element. That's how they measured things. So we're comparing apples and oranges here, let's be honest, and we'll see that in the survival data as well. Excellent distinction. We'll see how that plays out down the line when discussing the results of these trials. Additionally, JCOG excluded middle lobe tumors, whereas VLGB did not. Any other important exclusion criteria for patients enrolled in either of these two studies, Kelly? Yeah, just going over the basics of it. So CalGB required patients have an ECOG status of zero to two. They couldn't have any prior malignancies in the last three years other than some basic skin cancers or cervical bladder cancers. They couldn't have any prior history of chemo or radiation for lung cancer at any point in time either. Right, Kelly. And JCOG had slightly more restrictive ECOG status of zero or one and specified no prior history of malignancy within the last five years as opposed to CLGV's three, along with a no history of chemo or radiation for any reason. It's very unique to the JCOG trial that they had a requirement for preoperative FVB1 to be greater than 80%, and so these folks have very good lung function. CLGB trial, comparatively, didn't have an FVB1 cutoff for enrollment, though patients still had to be candidates for lobectomy. So they also excluded patients with high risk or specific risk factors that had the potential to impact overall survival, including active bacterial and fungal infections, interstitial pneumonitis, pulmonary fibrosis, severe emphysema, uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension, and severe heart disease. And I think we'll talk about this a lot as we get into the results, but this is a very select patient population that we're looking at. So to summarize, for both patients or both trials, these are patients that had tumors less than two centimeters. They're in the outer third of the lung. They're node negative, And they're overall healthy patients that are good surgical candidates based on their ECOG status. Yep, that's correct. So you've mentioned now node negative status. Well, we need to dive a little bit deeper into how each of these trials confirmed or did not confer that status as it is something that could impact both recurrence and long-term survival. Absolutely. So this is going to bring us into discussing the interoperative eligibility criteria for each study. Let's start with how the CLGB authors designed this. Eric, will you start us off? Well, design of CLGB trial required histological confirmation of non-small cell lung cancer either preoperatively or intraoperatively. Beyond that, n status, as, as suggested by imaging, had to be confirmed by sampling on the right side of lymph nodes in zone 4, 7, and 10. So two metastatal nodes and one hyalur node. And then on the left side, by in zone 5 or 6, 7, and 10. Similarly, two metastatal and one hyalur node. Lymph node sampling that had been performed by metastinoscopy or EBUS before surgery, the window allowed was six weeks, but most of the patients, or a lot of the patients, it was done at the time of surgery. It's, impress it's interesting to note that of the 1,000 patients, that were, 1,080 patients that were registered, there were about almost 400 patients who were excluded from the study. Bulk of that was because they had benign disease, 
And there's also a, a chunk of those patients because they were found to have a higher stage at surgery. Again, pointing to the fact that these were highly selected populations of patients. And of all the eligible patients, 6% of the patients were found to have nodal disease at the time of nodal sampling and were thus excluded from the trial. Right. And, and the design of the JCOG trial, while it also required histologic confirmation of non-small cell lung cancer, patients were required to be clinically node negative based on preoperative CT and PET scans within eight weeks of surgery. The intraoperative aspect, though, was a little different. There was no set requirement for checking N2 or N1 nodes. Instead, they would selectively look at lymph nodes based on intraoperative concern for whether malignancy was present. Now, once they actually performed the operation and they were randomized, they did require that there was a selective, sorry, a systematic lymph node dissection or at least a selective lymph node dissection as opposed to sampling, which was used in CalGB. Ultimately, frozen sections were only used for those lymph nodes that were macroscopically concerning based on the clinical judgment of the surgeon at the time. And then they would convert to a lobectomy if those nodes came back positive. So on final pathology, 94% of their patients confirmed N0 status, 3% actually had N1 disease, and 3% were confirmed to have N2 disease based on those intraoperative findings. Any of those patients that did ultimately get upstaged to a stage 1B or higher were recommended to receive adjuvant chemotherapy. I mean, ideally, you want to mandate what the Japanese did, but it would not have happened in the, in the U.S. That that systematic nodal dissection would not have happened. Yeah, especially so, when you're looking at multi-country, multinational. And I think that this is where you want to be a little looser on your entry criteria to allow for accrual. If you're too tight, you'll never accrue, and that's the game that's being played. Yeah, and even with these lesser restrictions, the recruitment rate for the CalGB trial was much slower than the JCOG trial. Well, I think that just points to the inherent focus of Japanese oncologic surgeons about how they believe in lymph nodes, and, and, and it's very, very different than what we're used to in, in North America. It's interesting how the, the countries that these trials occurred in play such a role in, in that aspect of things. Um, all right, so now with the discussion of the preoperative trial design behind us, we're going to get into our first key difference between these two trials, uh, which is how they were randomized. So let's start with JCOG. What two arms were patients being randomized to in this trial? So in the JCOG study, patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either lobectomy or anatomic segmentectomy. Now, Dr. Valier always makes sure to remind us that not all segmentectomies are created equal. The JCOG authors were very specific in their trial protocol as to which segmentectomies were allowed. As a general rule, only single segment or bisegments were allowed, the one exception being left apical trisegmentectomies, which were considered bisegmental by counting the apical posterior segment as a single segment. There were also two important exclusions. Middle lobes were excluded as this was thought to be no meaningful difference between the lobe versus the segment in this case. And basal segmentectomies were not allowed given more than two segments were resected. So to summarize, JCOG looked at lobe versus anatomic segment, and anatomic segment could encompass a single segment, a bisegment, a left triseg, and then they did not allow any middle lobes or basilar segments. 
Exactly. They also then stratified the randomization based on histology, sex, age, and thin section CT findings. Okay. Now get ready. Here's the big difference. What were the randomization arms for the CalGB trial? Well, as we talked about before, because it was an international trial with a lot of different surgical surgeons and surgical techniques, they actually randomized to low bar versus less than low, which include both anatomic segmentectomies as well as wedge resections. So this randomization also stratified based on tumor size and histology and smoking status. And the decision to proceed with either a wedge resection or an anatomic segmentectomy was at the discretion of the surgeon at the time that they were doing the operation. Now, the authors of CalGB designed the trial this way, probably for two main reasons. One is wedge resection was the most frequently practiced method for sublobar resection in North America and Europe. And they wanted to make this trial most similar to real world setting. The second was that the authors recognized an ideal trial design would have been to have three arms. So that would have been lobectomy versus anatomic segment versus wedge resection. But really the sample size needed to power such a trial design, it would have been prohibitively large and it would have taken decades to complete enrollment. So after randomization of sub lobar resection being at the surgeon's discretion, there's about a 60-40 split. 60% of patients received a wedge, about 40% an anatomic segmentectomy. Yeah, and the arms of both trials were, were well-balanced with regards to baseline patient characteristics. However, there were some key differences between the patient populations in each trial. The median age was very similar in the high 60s, 67 to 68, in both trials, with an even split for men and women. However, 90% of the patients in the CLGB trial were white, Caucasian, and it's important to re recognize that between those two trials, Hispanic and black patients are significantly underrepresented, and the Asian Pacific Islander population is almost exclusively Japanese. You know, Eric, there's also some important differences with respect to functional status. The JCOG patient group was 98% ECOG-0, whereas the CLGB group had 75% ECOG-0 and 25% ECOG-1, with very few ECOG-2s. Smoking history of these two populations was also extremely pertinent. 90% of the CLGB patients were former or current smokers, with 40% being active at the time of surgery. 44% of the JCOG patients were never smokers, compared to only 10% of CLGB patients. So as a whole, the JCOG population was more active, healthier, and had less smoking compared to the CLGB group. Yeah, and Brian, that's a, a really excellent point because it helps make a, a little bit of a distinction that these patient populations are truly a little different. And, and so, as uh, Eric had said, comparing apples to oranges in some aspects. So we talked a little bit about tumor size as well as this consolidation to tumor ratio earlier when we discussed the preoperative inclusion criteria. Uh, but what were the post-resection tumor characteristics of each of these study populations, Kelly? Yeah, so starting with the CalGB trial, remember their tumor size was based solely on the solid component of the tumor um, their median tumor size was 1.5 centimeters. Um, the majority of tumors were larger than a centimeter, with only about 8% being less than one centimeter. Histologically, 63% uh, of these tumors were adenocarcinoma, 14% were squamous cell, and 22% were other. This is a, a fairly diverse distribution, especially when we start to look at the JCOG distribution. 
That, so that is that is correct. And the JCOG trial, and 90% of the tumors were actually adenocarcinomas. And, and we have to consider that adenocarcinomas, particularly those that have only a part-solid element or component, in general are associated with a better survival outcomes. The median tumor size in the JCOG trial was a 16 millimeters, so very similar to CLGB. But remember that, that it included the non-solid component as well. 12% of tumors had a ratio in between 0.25 and 0.5. 36% had a ratio in between 0.5 and 1, leaving only half of the patients with a consolidation tumor ratio equal to 1. Not the same tumors. Right. And remember, that consolidation ratio of 1 means that it is a full solid nodule. So only 50% were full solid. Whereas when you do measurement size for CalGB, they only measured the solid component. Now, obviously, there are some tumors that also had a GGO component, but that wasn't included in their measurement size. So it seems that it's fair to say that even though they had equivalent median tumor sizes, JCOG had smaller tumors. That's my interpretation, correct? Correct. And more importantly, the biology of these partially solid tumors often is more favorable than pure solid lesions. There's, there's really a lot of nuanced differences between the study designs of these two trials as well as their patient populations. So for all our listeners out there, I want to summarize real quick before we dive into discussing the results of these two trials. So Dr. White, rapid fire, what are the key characteristics of the CalGB trial? So CalGB looked at non-small cell lung cancer, less than two centimeters solid component in the outer one third of the lung. They were N0 disease based on intraoperative nodal frozen sections with two negative mediastinal and one negative hyalur lymph node stations. And when they were randomized, it was either lobectomy versus less than lobectomy, including both anatomic and wedge resections. They had a fairly heavy either current or prior smoking population, 90% white, and there was a, a more diverse histologic distribution between adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and other. Great. Now, Dr. Louis, you're up. Rapid fire style, what are the key characteristics of JCOG? So JCOG, also non-small cell lung cancers, less than two centimeters, but 50% had an associated ground glass opacity or non-solid component. There was also outer third of the lung. They were clinically N0 based on pre-op CT head scan, selective interoperative frozen section, then randomized to lobar or anatomic segmentectomy. Almost all of them were ECOG zero. They had outstanding PFTs with an FEV1 greater than 80%, and only half the population was smoking, and 90% were adenocarcinoma. Excellent. Now the fun part, let's dive into the outcomes of these trials. All right. So for all our listeners, we're going to review each trial separately to review the results. That way we don't get confused comparing and contrasting. But then at the end, we'll bring it together uh, and end uh, discussing both the results uh, and the clinical impact. So if we start with CLGB trial, the primary outcome of the trial was DFS, or disease-free survival. And they found that sublobar resection was non-inferior to a lobectomy. At five-year follow-up, DFS for patients undergoing sublobar resection was 63.6%, equivalent to 64.1% for the group that underwent a lobectomy for a hazard ratio of 1.01. .01. The overall survival, which was a secondary endpoint, 
was also similar between the two groups at five years, 80.3% for the sublobar group, 78.9% for the lobectomy group, for a hazard ratio of 0.95. So we can roughly say, based on CLGB, disease-free survival at five years is roughly 65%, and overall survival is roughly 80%, with there being no difference between lobectomy and sublobar resection. And they did a subgroup analysis as well to determine if there were any substantial uh, between-group differences in DFS across key demographic and clinical variables. For the most part, the results were very general, were generally consistent across the groups. There may have been a few trends with outcomes for non-smokers favoring, a, 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 favoring the lobectomy with a hazard ratio of 1.75, but those two groups were very small. I think there were like 20 patients in each arm, so can go there. And after, also regarding the tumor location, lobectomy trended to favor tumors to the middle lobe, small group of patients, again, very small, with a hazard ratio of 2.27, and also left lower lobe for a hazard ratio of 1.35. But again, these were not statistically significant, and the sample size in each of these groups were very small, and I don't think we have enough to make any meaningful interpretations. Great. Now, what about their recurrence data? Let's dive into that. Yeah, so this data is pretty interesting. So to start with local regional recurrence, sublobar group had 13% local regional recurrence compared to 10% in the lobectomy group. While it was slightly higher for the sublobar group, this wasn't statistically significant. And when you look at the previously reported rate from the 1995 Ginsburg trial, it's actually three times lower than what that study had reported. When you look at overall recurrence rate, it was 30.4% for sublobar resection, 29.3% for lobectomy, and more than 50% of those recurrences occurred systemically. Uh, there was really no significant difference between those two groups for any of those statistics. So if we do a little bit of rounding, we can roughly say 30% overall recurrence rate for both groups, with about half being local regional and half being systemic. And that doesn't include the roughly 16% of patients who developed a new primary lung cancer at some point in the seven-year median follow-up time frame. Now, the last big outcome the authors of both these trials looked at was expiratory flow rates postoperatively. This was one of the outcomes I was looking forward to seeing come out of these randomized control trials because it's reasonable to say that more, the more lung parenchyma you resect, the greater the impact on pulmonary function. But the interesting thing is that there was minimal difference between the groups. The reduction in FEV1 was 6 percentage points for lobectomy compared to 4 for sublobar resection. FEC was decreased by 5 and 3% respectively. And overall, lobectomy patients can expect only 2% extra reduction compared to sublobar resection patients. Okay, hold up. We definitely need to take a second to analyze this outcome. A 2% difference between a lobectomy versus a sublobar resection, that just doesn't seem clinically meaningful and definitely not what I would expect. Yeah, and the authors discussed that surprising outcome in the paper as well. They questioned as to whether... FEV1 or FVC were the best markers for pulmonary function after lung resection, suggesting that maybe a six-minute walk test or some form of pulmonary exercise testing may be a better way to measure the outcome or include quality of life-specific outcomes. One thing, however, we have to understand is that not all segments 
are equal. Uh, and uh, there's not much of a difference in between taking out a complete basilar segments and a lobectomy, particularly on the left. So, you know, I think that, that they don't have enough data there to analyze that per segment. The numbers would be too small. Yeah, that basically is my take. I think that when we talk about pulmonary function test implication, lobe, lobe versus segment, not all segments are equal. Not all lobes are equal either, by the way. Yeah, and so that's one of the considerations because if you look at the number of lobectomies, a third of those resections were right upper lobe. Well, we know that only has three segments. You add in a few of those middle lobes, and likely this may affect these overall grouped PFT values because we know a right upper lobe is not going to be the same as removing a right lower lobe, especially if you take into a high smoking percentage group, largely may have emphysematous changes where an upper lobe uh, is going to be playing less of a significant physiologic effect uh, on their overall lung function compared to a lower lobe. So I think that's an excellent discussion of the main CalGB results. I think it's time we give JCOG a little bit of love too. So let's start breaking down their results for our listeners. These are the exciting ones. That really, this really shook things up a little bit, especially as it was one of the first papers to be published. Their goal at the start of the JCOG trial was to determine if anatomic segmentectomy was non-inferior to lobectomy with regards to overall survival as their primary outcome. While not only did their data demonstrate non-inferiority, it actually showed superiority of segmentectomy to lobectomy. That's right. Based on their over, overall survival data, the JCOG authors stated that segmentectomy should be the standard of care for this patient population with stage 1A non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, the raw numbers are interesting here. Once again, reflecting that we're not comparing the same populations. In the, in the Japanese trial, the overall survival for the segmentectin group at five years was 94.3%, and for the lobectomy group was 91.1%. That's 10 points higher than the North American trial, the CLGB trial showed. So we're not comparing the same patients here. All right. Well, next we want to look at the recurrence rate. So in the JCOG trial, there was no difference in overall relapse-free survival. So that's the term they used for their progression-free survival. Both of groups were 88%. The median time to relapse was similar as well at about 2.5 years. But the interesting piece here is that their relapse data regarding local regional recurrences was different. So the local regional recurrence rate in the segmentectomy group was 11%, where it was only 5% in the lobectomy group. Yeah, this is a, considering the overall result of the study. This is a fascinating piece of data, but I think this is what everyone expected regarding this outcome. Sublobar resections leading to more local regional recurrences. Yeah, I think we could say that we agree with that. The second nuanced piece of data is interesting as well, of, though, of those who recurred. If they initially had undergone a segmentectomy, they got treated for the recurrence more frequently, and more of them were alive at five years. 93% of patients undergoing segmentectomy got treated for the recurrence, compared to only 80% of lobectomy patients. And, uh, and only 49% of patients who underwent a lobectomy and relapsed were alive at five years, compared to 68% of segmentectomy patients. I have to be honest, I, I have a hard time to correlate all of these numbers with their survival data. I mean, to me, it's hard to understand and comprehend that you have a higher local recurrence rate, but that your lung cancer survival is either the same or, or overall better. I just cannot understand how 
this piece of information, which is expected, translates in better survival for the segmentectomy group. But doesn't doesn't that have to do with the fact that a lot of those segments then went on to probably a completion lobe at some point in time and did okay? Because then you're cherry-picking the patient. That's right. But you're, you're talking about a patient who never got a recurrence versus a patient who got a recurrence. You'd rather be in the group that never had a recurrence. True. I mean, the recurrence rate is double. It's it times two. And, I, and I, or maybe it's the biology of these cancers. Maybe, uh, you know, we need to follow them longer for these to declare them. I, I don't know. I have a very hard time. And I know they tried to explain the res- those results in the paper. I have a hard time with that piece of information. Can you think of any other study that's ever shown a higher local regional recurrence rate but better survival? No, not in cancer. Can't either. All right. Well, let's chat a little bit now about the pulmonary function data for the JCOG trial. There really wasn't a clinically significant difference. One year, the FEV1 reduction was 9% for segments, 12% for lobes. So only about a 3% greater reduction for lobes compared to segments. Similar to CalGB, and again, arguing that this might not be the best metric to use. This was really a whirlwind tour through these two trials. Before we get into kind of going over our overall conclusions, I want us to briefly summarize the results of these trials for our listeners out there so they can kind of wrap their heads around these numbers. So Dr. Bellier, rapid fire, what were the results of the CalGB trial? Very simply put, there was no difference in any of their outcomes between sublobar and lobectomy. Sublobar resection is non-inferior for disease-free survival, overall survival, and recurrence rates were very similar in between the groups, and there was no clinical significance in the magnitude of difference in post-op expiratory flow rates. All right, Dr. Louis, rapid fire, what were the results of JCOG? So for JCOG, anatomic secondotectomy was found to be both non-inferior and superior to lobectomy regarding overall survival and could be the standard of care in that very selected patient population. But that is at the cost of more frequent local regional recurrence and segmentectomy, though no difference in overall relapse-free survival was found. Segmentectomy patients got treated for recurrence more frequently treated for new second primary lung cancers more frequently and were more frequently alive at five years, even if they did have a recurrence. So Dr. Valier, Dr. Louis, Dr. White, so we're looking at these two trials and we've, we've started to dig into some of these points already, um, but what do we think are the most important conclusions and critiques to consider as we're looking at these results? Dr. White, let's start with you. You have to remember these are a very highly selected group of patients. You have to understand that the patient that you have in front of you in clinic may or may not meet this same group of patients. So are the results of these study transferable to that patient in front of you? We pointed out that this patient population between the two groups is fairly different between smoking status as well as overall histology with a higher rate of squamous cell in the CalGB trial. And there's likely some fundamental differences in these biologies of the tumors, like Eric has said. The aggressiveness may be different. It may be that the time that we need to follow these is not long enough to really show what the longer-term outcome is going to be. And so it's great to be able to extrapolate all of this data, use it in the clinic, and make an informed decision. But you have to be careful about the patient that you have in front of you and whether or not all of this data really is able to, to extrapolate to them. 
Yeah, I don't. I, I know we didn't get to the specifics for the sake of time, but you know, not all segments, as Brian has said, not all segments are the same. Some of them are very complex to to perform. You look at the operating time on the Japanese trial. I mean, up to nine hours in in both arms. So these were technically challenging surgeries on the, at the time. There's also some data to suggest that maybe, and we can't see that in those trials because the numbers are too small, that not all segments are of equal oncological value. That's been raised in a few trials from Japan and a series from Memorial Sloan Kettering as well. And then some of those very complex segments lead to very prolonged ailings after surgery. And that's one of the issues with those as well. Yeah, they actually published that data as a paperback in 2019 to look at their safety results. And their ailings were twice as likely to occur in the segmentectomy group with complex segments being the highest predictor. Brian, what are your thoughts? You know, up here, I don't think that's all that surprising when you're doing a complex segment. You know, I, I think if you're doing a superior segment of a lower lobe, that's pretty straightforward. But some of the segments in, in the Japanese trial were much more complex than that. And I think you're going to have those air leaks if you're trying to dig out those sub-segments. So as these papers were published, JCOG being published mid-2022, CalGB coming out early 2023, have the results of these trials changed your practice at all? Or were you, were you guys kind of practicing in line with this previous to these results coming out? Well, I'll tell you, we we were a CLGB trial site for many, many years early on in the trial. But our enrollments, admittedly, and this is on on public discourse waned in the in latter years of the trial because we'd already made the decision that we'd seen enough clinical activity that we were moving towards segments for these smaller lesions already. And so admittedly, we, we already had a introduced bias ourselves and we didn't enroll as many patients on CLGB as we probably should have. Yeah, I think based on some of the retrospective trials leading up to these, there was already enough data out there to start to change some of the practice patterns. I am more of a segmentectomy person if they're the appropriate patient. I don't so much do the really complex segments because what real benefit is there? If the survival is equivalent and the FEV1 values are relatively equivalent, but they have higher air leak rates and they have higher local recurrence, well, is it really worth it to do a complex basilar segment versus just doing a complete basilar segmentectomy? I'm not really sure it is. And so I do the more straightforward segments, basilar segment, superior segment, left upper lobe tri segments, all of those. But do I want to do a complex right upper lobe segment versus just removing those three? Now I'd probably just remove those three segments and do a lobectomy for that patient. Yeah, uh, basically uh, the, the one thing that uh, has changed for me is I used to poo-poo a wedge resection. I used to tell my patients that I thought this was a compromised cancer surgery, not for the GGOs and the PARC GGOs lesions, but look when you look at CLGB data under 15 millimeters, I am very comfortable if it's easy, if it's doable. Again, we talked about all segments not being equal. All wedges are not equal either. So I'm comfortable in, in offering this to a 15 millimeter or less. And I put my number at 15 because when you look at the CLGB data, if you look in under 10, 10 to 15, 15 to 20, there's a hint that if there had been more patients in between 15 to 20, that trial may have had a different conclusion. Just saying. So for me, under 15, I'm very comfortable doing a wedge. 
And I don't tell my patient it's a compromised cancer surgery anymore. I don't. Yeah, and especially, I mean, when you are trying to get a margin with a wedge resection, getting a margin around a two centimeter lesion is pretty challenging to do that without doing some sort of anatomic resection. Yeah. Uh, so what you've said makes sense in terms of looking at smaller tumors for wedge resections. And then remember the CalGB trial to include wedges, they still did the nodal dissection and confirmed that they were node negative intraoperatively. And so I don't think that that is as widespread throughout the U.S. in terms of if you're taking a patient and doing a wedge, are you really sending intraoperative frozen sections on their mediastinal nodes? Uh, I would guess not everybody is. I mean, I don't send frozen sections. I still collect uh, those nodes uh, when I think that there's a high risk of cancer. But we know that the rate of nodal spread in those patients is exceptionally low. So to then send those for frozen, is it really going to change what you're doing? Especially with more and more data saying that some of these sublobar resections, even in some N1 disease, may be adequate. There's a couple of subtypes of lesion cancers that we see that I'm not sure I am that comfortable yet, and those trials cannot answer that. Is there's some data to suggest that if you have stas less than allobectomy may lead to a higher recurrence rate and worse survival. Not randomized data, but some hints. Same, same those listening, stas is spread through air spaces. And then there's also micropapillary disease, which also there's some data to suggest that less than a lobectomy is, is not as good oncologically. It's not randomized data, but there's some hints out there. So I think we'll need to, you know, there's, they talk in oncology about personalized, personalized oncology care. I think we're going to have to do the same with surgery, and we're going to be doing personalized surgical care, precision lung cancer surgery, even for those little tumors. Absolutely. And I feel like, as always, I leave these Journal Club discussions ready for the next decade's literature to come out and all the future things to, to investigate to answer some of these questions that we don't have data for yet. So I have thoroughly enjoyed the discussion and the thoughtful analysis of each of these studies. I hope we've given our listeners a wealth of information regarding these trials, which have really uprooted 30 years of dogma that lobectomy is superior to segmentectomy in early stage lung cancer. So we're going to close out this episode with some quick hits. But if you're interested, stay tuned for some bonus content at the end of the episode. The CalGB authors just published a subset analysis comparing outcomes between just the wedge and segment arms of the study, and we'll quickly break that down for our listeners who are interested in more. Okay, quick hits time. All right. So, Kelly, what patient population can the data from these two trials be applied to? So, patients with less than two centimeter, peripheral, no negative, non-small cell lung cancer were generally healthy. Eric, how were patients randomized in the CLGB trial? It was lobectomy versus sublobar resection, which could be either a wedge or, or an anatomical segmentectomy, and the split turned out to be 60% wedges, 40% segments. Peter, how were patients randomized in the JCOD trial? It was a bit more straightforward. It was either lobectomy or an anatomic segmentectomy, but they had to be either a single or a bi-segment, aside from the left upper lobe triseg. Brian, what about primary outcome in the CalGV trial? Regarding disease-free survival, sublobar resection was non-inferior to lobectomy. Kelly, the primary outcome of JCOG? Sir, regarding overall survival, segmentectomy is non-inferior and superior to lobectomy. Anyone who is still listening, get ready for some great bonus content. So fairly hot off the press is the eagerly anticipated 
post hoc analysis of the CalGB data, comparing outcomes with segmentectomy and wedge resection as two separate groups instead of being lumped together as sublobar resections. So as we discuss this data, the really important thing to remember is that the study was not powered to detect differences between wedge and segments. So this analysis is only hypothesis generating, it's not hypothesis testing. And additionally, I think we need to keep in mind that patients were not randomized to wedge or segment and it was left up to the individual surgeon's discretion as to which operation they are going to proceed with. Right. So there's already an immediate surgeon bias. They're choosing which patient to do a segment versus a wedge based on characteristics of that tumor. Well, first, there were no differences between the groups in DFS, disease-free survival, overall survival, or lung cancer-specific survival. Secondly, overall recurrence was equivalent between the wedges and the segments at 31% for each group. Numerically, local regional recurrence were more frequent with wedge resections at 14% compared to 12% for segments and 10% for lobes, not statistically significant. Distant recurrence was also similar at 15% for wedge and 17% for segments. But I will echo what Peter said, non-randomized, and there are lesions that it cannot do a wedge. And if you're going to be doing less than a lobe, you got to do a segment. And there are other lesions where a wedge is straightforward, and none of that data here can help us determining that. Yeah, but this is going to, for some readers of the paper, challenge long-held concepts that wedge resections are inherently suboptimal oncologic procedures. And you've already highlighted that before, Eric. And it suggests that a wedge or a segment might be an acceptable, patient, acceptable choice for this patient population. And again, we remind everybody this is hypothesis generating, not testing. Right. And for that CalGB study, remember, as I said before, they actually sent interoperative frozen sections. And so to really follow the study design for your own patients, you'd have to confirm their node negative uh, before you're going to proceed and continue with a wedge resection. Yeah, the other data, piece of data coming out of this post-op analysis was regarding the margin status. There was a significant, significant difference in median margin length between wedges and segments. The median margin length for wedges was 16 millimeters comparing to 20 millimeters for segments. Another way to look at this is the margin to tumor ratio. While wedges were more likely to have a ratio less than one, there was no difference in the median ratio at 1.2 and 1.3 respectively. Wedge resections were more likely to have a positive marginal and frozen section or permanent section at a rate of 4.9% compared to only 1.5% for segments and 0.9% for lobes. This is certainly interesting data as one of the things we get most concerned about, particularly during a wedge, is whether we're taking an adequate margin. Here the authors conclude that an adequate margin is two centimeters or equal to the size of the clinical tumor. I agree that's in line with prior studies and reasonable. So certainly more studies need to be done to compare wedge to segments that are randomized and powered um, to really detect differences in these two groups. But as we've said, this data certainly suggests that wedge resections might not be as oncologically suboptimal as previously thought. Well, thank you everyone for listening. A uh, big thanks to Dr. Valier for joining us on this episode. We hope all of our listeners out there enjoyed this bonus content and our journal club today. And as always, dominate the day.
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.